fellow ag nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. I like to kind of mix things up here a little bit on the show, which means that I'm often going back and forth between very specific stories of what innovation looks like in practice in agriculture, and then the more philosophical type conversations that sort of ask big picture questions about where agriculture is headed, hence the name of the show, Future of Agriculture. Today's episode is going to be a little bit more of the latter. In these types of episodes, I typically like to bring on someone who's thought deeply about a topic I'm wrestling with and just sort of fire a bunch of questions at them. I always feel like I come away from episodes like this much smarter, and that's definitely the case today. Most of you who listen to this podcast are like me in that you're fortunate enough to have an abundance of food choices. It's a luxury that, of course, hasn't been afforded to a lot of people throughout human history, and one that comes with new questions to ask ourselves. And probably the most basic and fundamental of those questions is, what should we eat? I mean, what is right for us nutritionally, economically, and I'll go ahead and say it, sustainably? As with many of the questions we pose on this podcast, there of course isn't just one straightforward right or wrong answer, but it's still a really important question, in my opinion, to ask and to try to analyze. Our guest today has spent years diving into these types of questions and analyzing the environmental impacts of the food system and what can be done to optimize the amount of food that gets produced and distributed while minimizing the negative externalities that come from growing food. Rich Waite is a senior research associate in World Resources Institute's food program. He's an author of the World Resources Report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, which focuses on solutions to feed 10 billion people by 2050, including boosting agricultural productivity, reducing food loss and waste, shifting toward plant-rich diets, and protecting and restoring forests and other natural ecosystems. Rich is also the data lead for Cool Food. It's an initiative that helps major food providers reduce food-related greenhouse gas emissions in line with climate science. Prior to joining WRI in 2007, Rich lived in Cameroon for four years, where he served as an agroforestry extension agent with the U.S. Peace Corps and helped coordinate the U.S. Embassy's international development programs. Today, Rich and I discuss that for all the talk related to climate change and the footprint of the food system, there's been actually very little progress to really reducing that carbon footprint. We discuss why actions have to be taken and what the data tells us about what levers are available to be pulled to realistically make that happen while producing and distributing adequate amounts of nutritious food to people around the world. I'm going to drop into the conversation here where Rich is talking about why he truly believes in the work he does at the World Resources Institute. I mean, one thing that I really like is we work right at the intersection of environment and human development. And so, yeah, it's all about sustainable development. And we're a research organization, but all the research that we do is applied. And so we talk about research into action or ideas into action. And we talk about our approach as count it, change it, scale it. So the count it is all about the research and the data that we do. And so 
we'll probably talk about our creating sustainable food future report. And that's, you know, we did sort of modeling to look at different scenarios of food production and consumption out to the year 2050 and what that would mean in terms of deforestation and climate change and the ability to feed 10 billion people and so on. And then the change it piece is where we then work with different stakeholders to, you know, to try out some of the sort of different recommendations that flow from our analysis. So one of the things is a, a shift where we eat a lot of meat towards plant-rich diets. And so we worked with this program called the Better Buying Lab, where we worked with food service companies and universities to test out sort of different strategies, like how do we name different plant-centered dishes so they're more appealing to a general audience. And then there's the scale-it piece, which is trying to design kind of whole programs to figure out how do we you know, work with people to implement something at scale. And so an example of that is the, the program called Cool Food that we work on where we've brought together 40 different companies, universities, restaurant chains, hospitals, and so on, and collectively serving almost a billion meals a year. And then we're all working collectively to try to reduce the climate impact of the food that they're serving by 25% by 2030. So we start with research and numbers and data and so on, but then, you know, everything's trying to connect to, so what does that mean in the real world and, you know, what can we all do about it? Right. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that drew me to wanting to reach out to you is your work seems to be, first of all, you know, data-based, but second of all, not just isolating for one thing, not just saying like, okay, how do we reduce greenhouse uh, gas emissions at all costs? Even if that means that we can't feed everybody, can't feed everybody. Like you, you have to incorporate those realities and you all seem to do that. My understanding is between 2010 and 2050, if we're going to not raise our temperature by two degrees, it's going to require a 25% cut in greenhouse gas emissions. I, I got that from reading some of the materials uh, of yours. My understanding is, you know, that, that that's what it's going to take. How are we doing? It's 2021. Between 2010 and today, how are we doing along that path? Sure. Well, it's actually even more than that. So the, the challenge that we're looking at is, like you said, going out to 2050, probably going to add another couple billion people to the human family. There's going to be something like 10 billion people um, on the planet by 2050. How is the world going to feed everyone while also halting deforestation, which needs to happen to keep the climate you know, below one and a half, two degrees of warming? And then also reduce greenhouse gas emissions to, you know, stabilize the climate at, at an acceptable level. And we'll need something more like a two-thirds cut by 2050 in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. And if we want to get all the way to net zero emissions, which is what folks are saying needs to happen to stay within one and a half degrees Celsius of warming, we're going to need to accompany these big cuts in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions with a lot of reforestation as well in the order of hundreds of millions of hectares of, of trees where they used to be. So it's a really, really big challenge. Your question is, how are we doing now that we're already in 2021? And yeah, I mean, we're still kind of moving on that business as usual path for the most part. Um, if we look at I think between 2010 and 2017, agricultural greenhouse gas emissions are still growing. We're going to need to peak that and, and reduce it kind of even more sharply than if we had peaked in 2010. So kind of all the different things that we looked at between the farm and the fork that could be done are, are, are still relevant today and you know more urgent than they were 10 years ago. Is there any evidence that we can provide food at net zero carbon emissions without some sort of offset, like you said, reforestation? Well, I would say no. <laughs> I think unless there's some sort of technologies that, you know, nobody's dreamed up yet, which, you know, who knows, 30 years from now, 
there's a lot that can happen. We have this this model called Globagri, which essentially it's, it's like a bunch of Excel sheets, uh, you know, all, all hooked together, basically allowing you to make different assumptions about food production and farming systems and about consumption patterns, levels of waste, what people are eating, and so on. And then it'll help you estimate how much land that's going to take and what the effects on greenhouse gas emissions are. Because agriculture, as it keeps expanding into forest, that causes deforestation, which causes more climate change, and we need to stop that. And we run a whole bunch of different scenarios. And basically, to feed 10 billion people, there's going to be some level of greenhouse gas emissions. You know, hopefully it wouldn't be what we have today, but it, it is still going to be kind of some level. And then you think about, you know, is it is it going to be reforestation? Is it going to be agricultural soil carbon? But it's going to be getting more carbon on the land to essentially offset some of those ongoing emissions because truly, you know, getting rid of methane emissions or nitrous oxide emissions or carbon dioxide emissions in agriculture all the way down to zero while still feeding billions and billions of people. Yeah, I don't see how that's possible. But there's a lot that can be done on the land to, you know, try to soak up some of the carbon in the atmosphere. Right. And, and I was interested in, in reading some of your work that one of the top things that we can do to reduce and, and you know, obviously, I, I gave you a binary question there at first, can we get to zero or not? And we've got a long ways to go before anywhere close to net zero, where we can make up some ground. And that's what we'll focus most of our conversation on is how do we do better? Like, you know, the goal doesn't need to be zero, but it, it probably needs to be better. And I know one of your top solutions is greater productivity per land area. Can you talk a little bit about that? In our report, there was one scenario which we kind of called the, like between us, the nightmare scenario, which is like, well, what would happen if you took kind of today's farming systems and tried to use that to supply the additional 50% or more of food that's likely to be needed by 2050, right? So if we need 50% more food in the food supply and we just kind of expand everything that we have today out, and basically what that would do is it we'd have to knock down like 3 billion more hectares of forest, which is basically all the world's remaining forests to feed everyone by 2050. Now, that's probably not going to happen because agriculture improves its productivity every year, right? You can look back, the UN Food and Ag Organization has data going back to the 1960s, and you can see crop yields and the amount of meat and milk per hectare of pasture growing year on year. So that's not like a reasonable assumption that you're just going to take today's farming systems and feed 10 billion people with them in 2050. But it's a good kind of thought experiment. And that would just mean massive amounts of deforestation. Now, think about that scenario. And then our kind of business as usual scenario, where we just kind of assumed kind of historical uh, rates of improvement in crop yields and, and in livestock and meat and milk output per hectare, feeding everybody at sort of what you can expect diets will look like in 2050. Even then, we're talking about another 600 million hectares of uh, deforestation. And that's about twice the size of India. So that's, again, still a huge amount of land. And if that amount of deforestation occurs between now and 2050, it's probably going to put you know, climate targets out of reach, right? We have to reduce emissions from fossil fuels, obviously, and the world's working hard on that and has to do even better. But even if we get that right, you know, if we're still going to clear another 600 million hectares of forests, you know, the climate is going to continue to warm more than we can take. So one of the big messages of our report when you're talking about the problem is from a climate standpoint, yes, we need to 
reduce our fossil fuel use as much as possible. But if we don't also work on reducing emissions from agriculture and deforestation, we're not going to get to where we need to be on climate. So we need to do both. You know, obviously, carbon markets have been the hot topic everybody wants to talk about right now. I definitely see where there's a noble ambition behind, you know, paying farmers to sequester carbon. I wonder if one of the unintended consequences might be exactly what we're talking about here, which is more land used for agriculture or incentivized to be used for agriculture, when maybe that's not net the best thing for the planet in the end. If the world's agriculture kind of stayed as it is today and we had to feed a lot more people and you get a lot of deforestation, if it continues to improve as it has over the past decades and you can kind of reasonably expect it will, we still get quite a bit of deforestation. If you want to get that deforestation down to zero, and not only that, if you want to then open up some areas that are currently producing food to put some trees back where they were before, which is what you really need to get to net zero, as we were talking about, right? You need this kind of large-scale reforestation. You're going to have to improve productivity even quicker than you ever have before, right? So we had the green revolution. We kind of need to do that again, plus, and do it without some of the environmental impacts. So that's kind of the big issue. If we need to produce more food while freezing agriculture's land footprint, you know, stopping encroaching on forests and even free up some land for reforestation. And so that's going to require, you know, kind of unprecedented productivity improvements. And, you know, that's why it also requires looking at consumption patterns and things like reducing food loss and waste and, and in places where we eat a lot of meat, you know, shifting to a more plant rich diet, although it doesn't mean everyone has to become a vegetarian. Oh, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's an important point there at that last one, because I think the Twitter mob or et cetera wants to paint you into one of two corners, which is all meat all the time, as much meat as possible and no meat and, you know, hating animal agriculture. And I definitely think there's a middle ground and there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with saying the planet would be better off if we ate less meat. Yeah. I mean, our, our report, it was kind of a very strong two-part message on meat, which is, again, the population's growing Incomes are rising in many parts of the world, and where incomes rise, you know, especially if you know people are being lifted or lifting themselves out of, out of poverty, you see meat consumption grow. That you've know, seen that sort of across every single country in history. So those are trends that are that are happening and probably will continue to happen. And from a nutritional standpoint, especially you know if you're talking about in rural areas of developing countries where people are consuming you know very little animal products, you know from a nutritional standpoint, moderate increases it's 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 a good thing. So there's that going on. So then that means there's probably going to be some increase in meat demand. So then the question is, well, how can we produce it kind of as as sustainably as possible? How can we reduce emissions from beef production? How can we in places where um, productivity is, is lower, so that tends to be in the tropics. How can farmers sustainably intensify production so they're able to produce more meat and milk without increasing pressure on forests? So there's that. And then there's the, you know, in places that consume a high amount of meat, cutting back, shifting towards plants, because what that essentially does is it helps open up planetary space for those who are eating a very low amount to increase their consumption. So it's sort of both. So it's it's definitely not black and white, and it's not 10 billion people going vegan, but it's also not, you know, diets don't matter and eat whatever you want. It's producing as, as sustainably as possible. And then we, you know, think about consumption patterns as well. Right. 
This question may may wander a little bit outside of your area that you normally speak in. So you tell me if you want to kind of go down this road or not. But one thing that comes to mind for me is, okay, let's so let's say people do eat less meat and people do eat more meat alternatives. What does that do to our agricultural system that is so built upon, especially Midwest agriculture, is, is really built upon two things, and that's, you know, animal agriculture and ethanol. Let's say if those two things, we decide it's better for the planet that less of that happens. I don't know that I buy the argument that it's easy for them to just switch to, you know, pinto beans. <laughs> you know, I, I, what? Growing a bunch of like kale or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. don't know that I buy it. And so not to say that uh, our Midwest farmers should be protected at all costs, but I'm just kind of trying to wrap my mind around more as a, you know, thought exercise of like, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, think about going back to the sort of the point that it's not all black and white. I mean, one interesting kind of factoid is if you look back to the 1970s in the U.S., per capita beef consumption has actually dropped by a third. It reached a high in somewhere in the 1970s, and it's, and it's since declined by about a third. Individual per capita meat consumption has grown a little bit since the 70s because people have kind of shifted from beef towards chicken. But again, the fact that folks have reduced their beef consumption by about a third, then you look at total beef production in the U.S., and it's held pretty steady since the 1970s. Because what happened? We added another 120 million Americans. If you think about that, that's kind of that's kind of what the world on a more macro level is looking at over the next three decades. We're, again, probably going to be adding another 2 billion people to the planet. We're going to be adding another couple billion people, at least, to the global middle class. And so, demand for meat and dairy is probably going to continue to grow. And then the question is, by how much? And in places where we consume a lot, cutting back, you know, there's also going to be probably more export opportunities. So again, I think that where the conversation kind of falls apart sometimes is if you're not looking 30 years ahead into the future and you're saying, well, what if someone eats less? Then it's like, oh no, my market's disappeared. Well, we'll know the the global market's probably going to be growing and food is traded across borders. So I think, I mean, that was kind of one of one of the things that came out to me in the work that we did is that there's like, there's a path forward for folks. And, you know, when we're thinking about how to sustainably feed 10 billion people, obviously 30 years is a long time. So there's a lot of different directions that it could go. But I would encourage folks to think about that, that it's, you know, global markets will probably grow and there's already kind of precedent for shifts having happened. And yet there's a path forward for folks, I think. Did that kind of answer your question? It's a, it's a really good point. It, well, it, it wasn't where I expected you to go, but it's a really great direction. No, I, I, I appreciate it. You've been with WRI, what, over a decade now? Yeah, 13 years. And when along those 13 years did you first hear about regenerative agriculture? And, and you know, what are your thoughts from somebody who's been looking at the issues that regenerative agriculture is sort of being espoused to help solve? What's your impression? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, a lot of the research that we did for the Creating Sustainable Food Future Report, uh, 2012 through 20, yeah, 17, 18, because we published it in 2019. And it was near the tail end of it that I think, you know, you saw the, the term regenerative agriculture sort of taking off. I know that a paper just came out that actually graphed it. And I think it was like through the 2010s, you can see this like this huge takeoff in mentions of regenerative agriculture kind of, you know, in the literature and the media or whatever. And it's obviously a very hot topic right now. There's a few things to unpack there, I think. One is, you know, different people will define it in different ways. 
I think a lot of people define it sort of across a suite of practices. I think sometimes people use it as a shorthand for soil carbon sequestration. And I think, you know, you see that in policy circles, you see that with, with companies. And one kind of worry that we have is there's some sort of really big estimates of soil carbon sequestration potential out there, you know, to the point where when people think about climate change mitigation and agriculture, they start with soil carbon sequestration and sometimes they even end with it. <laughs> and there's all these other things. I mean, our, our, you know, our report, you know, talked about the importance of reducing livestock emissions and reducing fertilizer emissions and reducing emissions from rice production, which is maybe a little less relevant in the U.S. I mean, there's a couple things going on. One is you can look all the way back to the um, 2007 IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. And when it looked at mitigation in agriculture, it estimated really large mitigation potential from no-till and from grazing practices. And the thing is, in the years since 2007, the scientific understanding of some of that stuff has changed. And scientists have kind of revised those estimates downward. But I think that idea is still sort of, you know, very prominent. <laughs> so there's that going on. And one other thing I see a lot of these days is also people are sometimes conflating the potential to sequester more carbon on the land in places where we're continuing to produce food and what you would think of as agriculture versus sequestering more carbon on the land in places where you are no longer producing food. So you're talking about reforestation, if you're talking about rewetting peatlands where you're producing food right now and you know and the carbon comes back. People sometimes talk about, well, if you convert cropland to pasture land, you will sequester carbon, but you'll also produce less food on that land. So there's this kind of conflation with the ability to get carbon back on the land sort of everywhere across the landscape and the smaller ability to do it in, in places where you're still producing food. And then it all gets kind of talked about as regenerative agriculture. So I, I don't know if I, if I kind of said that clearly, but it's actually a really important point because, again, you know, reforestation, yes, you'll get a lot of carbon back on the land, but you're not producing food there anymore. That's not what I would think of as regenerative agriculture, and yet some will kind of put it all together. Yeah. Yeah. And to make sure I'm kind of tracking, there's a real danger in over-indexing for soil carbon sequestration so that if, you know, if that becomes the end-all be-all of metrics, it really ignores the trade-offs of we're sequestering more carbon in our soil, but we're using, you know, twice the amount of land we really need to produce these crops when maybe the trade-off there is that if we could have reforested half that land, we would get more, uh, you know, soil carbon sequestration and less, fewer emissions, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you said that very important word, which was trade-offs. You know, I, I mentioned before that, like, you know, across the tropics, there's places where more cows could be put on, a you know, an acre of, of pasture. And, you know, through agroforestry, silvopasture type techniques, and that people would group that under regenerative agriculture. And that's also a case where you're boosting yields on the land. So you're also reducing agriculture's uh, land requirements. So it means you're reducing pressure on forest. So that's like, there, there's not a trade-off. Where there is a trade-off is the scenario that you talked about, where, you know, maybe I'm sequestering more carbon on the land, but if if yields go down, which is not to say they always will, but if they do go down, well, food demand is still going up globally. So that food's going to have to be produced somewhere else. And what does that mean? It's probably, you know, land 
land conversion is going to happen somewhere else and carbon is going to be lost somewhere else. So you have to think about sort of these system-wide impacts of these things that we're recommending. And I think there's also one other thing, which is like, you know, people are talking about agriculture and climate and it's just, you know, it's music to my ears, right? The Biden administration is talking about agriculture playing a big role in, you know, in the fight against climate change. And you hear a lot of companies talking about it too. And it's like, you know, this is great. Your work has um, never been cooler. <laughs> exactly. And some of these, you know, regenerative techniques, by and large, they're all good for building resilience to climate change. But that's not the same as mitigating climate change. It's not the same as reducing emissions. And that's, that's just an important point to make. And both are really important. We have to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, get more carbon on the land. And we also have to build resilience. But, you know, to your point of we don't want to run the risk of overemphasizing the potential of any one solution at the detriment of others, because one of the biggest messages of our report is like, you really have to try to do everything at once. <laughs> and, you know, just like I would be uncomfortable if tomorrow there was a policy to let's try to, you know, make the entire country vegan. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, there's all these different improvements from the farm to the fork. I think we have to be innovating on, on all of them if we want to get to where we need to be. Yeah. It seems like there's an analogy here with kind of weight loss, right? Where it's really hard to sort of exercise yourself out of weight loss. You really need to, you need to reduce the consumption to kind of get there. And of course, it, it sounds like, oh, well, I'll just play more basketball and then I'll still eat all these Big Macs. And it kind of like doesn't really sort of work that way, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like being depressed after you run on the treadmill for like an hour and you've burned... 300 calories or something. Exactly. <laughs> right. And then you yeah. go eat a 1000 calorie meal. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and, but, and it's an important point. And, and, you know, I think, again, it's really, really, really amazing to see all of the sort of energy around how can agriculture be a part in the fight against climate change. And it's really attractive to think about removing carbon from the atmosphere and putting it back on the land. But it's also about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that's just it's just it's just really important because there's a lot of opportunities there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's less, you know, sexy to reduce emissions. I want to talk about this cool food program that you have. You mentioned it earlier. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think what's interesting to me right now is whether it's through consumer pressure or political pressure or ESG, there's these food companies that are saying like, okay, it's time we we really start engaging on this front. So can you maybe talk about that program? Yeah, sure. So, so Cool Food, it's a group of, like I said, it's about 40 companies right now and a few, a few city governments and hospitals and universities, restaurant chains, and they've collectively pledged to reduce their, the greenhouse gas associated with the food that they're buying and serving by 25% by 2030. And then, remember, like I said at the, at the beginning, we need to, uh, agricultural sector needs to be looking at reducing emissions by at least two-thirds by 2050. So that 25% by 2030 from where the group has started would kind of get folks on the path. And so it's a you know, science-based greenhouse gas reduction target. So companies take the pledge and then Every year, they, they track the different types of foods that they purchased over the year, and they, they report that to us. We help them estimate the associated greenhouse gas emissions. We play that back to the companies, and then we report out once a year how the group is doing, because, again, it's sort of like a collective effort. And we're actually, um, just this week, going to be publishing our first update report, the group's progress through 2019. And we've seen a significant greenhouse gas reduction, which is really cool, because it's kind of 
uh, it was as companies were kind of just joining. So it's great to see that so far. We work with them also to, you know, help them think through the kind of different things that they could be doing, you know, whether it's changing the types of dishes that they're serving or sort of their, um, you know, their cafeteria or menu layout or, you know, promoting certain dishes, so sort of taking the latest from behavioral science to help them think through, you know, a plan of given the way their business works, what are some, uh, you know, different things that they could be doing to move their offerings in a more climate-friendly direction. And then we work with folks who are making progress to sort of then kind of showcase progress and talk about the different innovations that they're doing to kind of show what is possible. And so that's kind of how the program works. And how are they getting the data from their supply chain to validate this? Because if I'm, let's say I'm a farmer and I'm growing wheat for, um, you know, General Mills, what's in it for me to tell you what I'm doing so that you can feel better about yourself and your emissions, just just kind of to take on the voice of farmers that I personally know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. The way it works right now is that the Cool Food Pledge members that we work with source the majority of their ingredients through the national distribution channels. If you're based in North America, we'll use like a North America average greenhouse gas emission factor for each of the different ingredients. We do leave it open for folks who, if they're sourcing from a particular supplier or a particular farmer, and we can, you know, figure out, so what's what does that mean in terms of greenhouse gas emissions compared to the average, then we'll work with you to figure out how to how to revise that. A lot of times that's trickier though, because if you know the further you move down the supply chain, the less visibility you have up the chain, right? So a lot of it is for the moment using North America averages if you're if you're based in North America or Europe if you're based in Europe. Um, the the production piece is super important as well. So, you know, as kind of traceability improves and as our ability to translate changes that that farmers are making into greenhouse gas emissions estimates, then we'll incorporate that as well. And at this point, they're doing this voluntarily. Uh, Do you see a future where it's sort of like nutrition facts, where you're not allowed to put something out there unless you have been transparent with the carbon footprint of that product? It's interesting. I mean, I think there is a lot of interest right now in carbon labeling. I know there are some companies that have started doing it voluntarily. We actually have a sort of another arm of cool food called Cool Food Meals. And Panera is the first company that we're working with where they've actually published the greenhouse gas emissions of each of their dishes on their menu. And they've marked the the lower emitting ones as Cool Food Meals. And if you go on the Panera app now, you can kind of look through and there's you know, a part of their menu that's a sort of lower emission food. And you go on their website and see the calculations. So, so there are companies that are starting to do that. It would be interesting too, because to your point, you can't right now easily, you know, you can't go to the grocery store and go to the meat counter and look at all the different cuts of beef and say, well, this one was 23 kilos of CO2 per, per pound. And this one was 26 and this was 19. Like we don't have that visibility right now. So, you know, there isn't that sort of link backward from the consumer to the producer to do that. I mean, I could see things moving in that direction, just, you know, just given all of the interest right now in combating climate change and in transparency. And, you know, for those who are leaders and making real strides in what they're doing, they'll probably want, you know, a way to to label that as well. Right. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I could see a company like Panera if they're saying, okay, we want to uh, we want to offset our our footprint, but rather than going and buying credits, why don't we just improve our supply chain to offset it that way? If there is a big variation between one supplier and another, and that that creates an incentive for that supplier, and I don't know, this is all living in fiction in my head, but that would make sense to me. Yeah, it could be a, a direction it all goes. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think again, people are probably only to get more sort of concerned about climate change going forward. I mean, it's just been interesting to see like the conversation has has changed quite a bit even here in the U.S. And we've seen we've seen a lot of effects of climate change right here, and you know all these extreme weather events that that we've seen over the past two or three years. People are, I feel like people are talking about it in a in a way that they weren't even a few years ago, and probably assume that would continue going forward. So then then what are we all going to do about it? Yeah. So that gets to the question, right? What are we going to do about it? You know, I think agriculture, if we're going to uh, say something good on what we've done is certainly the productivity. Like you said, the productivity has grown tremendously. And it's kind of amazing that we keep finding ways to be more and more productive on the land we are producing. Uh, you've got this regenerative movement that, you know, may be overhyped, but is still, you know, doing some things, especially when you think about emissions from uh, fertilizer use, as an example, you know, that drastically drops in a real regenerative system, not necessarily those that just claim to be. What other areas are we making good progress in? on all this. And again, you started with the productivity piece because I think there's a place where maybe agriculture hasn't gotten the credit that it deserves from a climate standpoint because the fact that we're growing so much more on land means that, you know, there's deforestation that would have happened somewhere otherwise to grow those crops or to grow that meat or dairy products. And so there's there's a lot of progress that's already been done and we'll need to, you know, maintain and keep improving productivity going forward, you know, even places like the U.S. where it's already pretty high. And we talked about livestock emissions. Livestock production accounts for about 40% of uh, U.S. agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. And so there was just a study out, I think, last week experimenting with feeding seaweed to cattle. And I think in that study, in whatever conditions it used, it reduced the methane by like 80%. I know there's a feed additive called 3NOP that I think reduces methane emissions by about 30%, and it's not available on the market yet, but it's sort of, companies are testing it out. So there's things like feed additives, different ways to manage manure, you know, all these, so these are different things that can help reduce livestock emissions. And then your your fertilizer point is true. So I think you were, you were talking about if, um, you know, you use cover crops, it traps more nitrogen in the soil, you don't have to use as much fertilizer. So there's that, and that's really good. There's also the potential to use, these. they're called nitrification inhibitors. It's a compound that's included in the fertilizer, and it reduces the amount of nitrogen that's lost into the soil and into the air. Because it can be hard to apply the perfect amount of fertilizer, and, you know, it's easier to overapply it a little bit than underapply it a little bit, Right. If you can reduce the amount of nitrogen that's being lost through, you know, the composition of the fertilizer itself, it can reduce emissions. So there's things like that. And, you know, some of this is going to, I think, you know, require some sort of government programs because if it becomes more expensive for a farmer to use a technology that doesn't improve productivity or profitability, it shouldn't impact it because if it impacts it, that's a trade-off. You don't want to do that. But if it doesn't improve profitability by itself, if it doesn't pay for itself, someone's going to have to pay for it. And it's climate change. So we should all, you know, society kind of has to pay for that. So it'd be really interesting to see if the Biden administration 
looks into what are some of these technological innovations that could help reduce greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. And if it's going to otherwise imply a cost to the farmer, well, you know, how can we pay for it so we all benefit, but it doesn't impact, you know, the farmer's bottom line? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the seaweed and cattle thing is a perfect example. That's great reducing methane by 80%. Who's going to pay for it? Where, where's the ROI for that producer? I, I don't know. I mean, unless somebody's willing to pay them a premium, you know, for the beef. It's not there. So, yeah, I think I think you bring up an excellent point there. Well, I want to talk about individual change versus systemic change. And I think this is probably a good context to have that discussion in. Can you talk about how you look at those two things and what systemic change might look like? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, when we looked at this question of, you know, shifting towards more, you know, healthier and more sustainable diets, because it did come out in our in the modeling that we did that, you know, it is an important part of the puzzle, you know, so then how does that actually happen? And it's a bit different now, but if you look five, 10 years ago, sort of a lot of the work around dietary change and, you know, what's good for you and what's good for the planet, a lot of it was sort of about that, like information and education and trying to raise awareness. And that's obviously not enough. A few years ago, there was a a survey done in the US and they asked consumers, well, do you want to eat more more sustainably and three quarters of them said yes. And you ask consumers, well, do you want to eat more healthy? And like 90% or more say yes. Okay, great. And then you follow them around in the in the supermarket or at the restaurant and there's a difference between sort of awareness raising and action. And so when we talk about systemic change, I mean, yeah, you talked about policy and then there's also sort of the consumption environment, right? Like people make their food choices. They may say they care about the environment, but it's really price taste, convenience, you know, perceived quality or safety of of the food, then you get down to things like, you know, sustainability or animal welfare or so on, where, you know, consumers care about that, but it's, yeah, price, taste, convenience matters a lot more. And so then it's, well, you know, what do menus look like and what are restaurants offering and, you know, where are things put on store shelves and so on? Like all of these things affect the environment in which we make our food purchasing choices. And then there's policy as well, which is also important. Right. Well, I tend to end with the question I should have started with. It's just some weird thing that I a trap I fall into all the time. But, you know, the report's called Creating a, a Sustainable Food Future, right? So define sustainable when it comes to food. Obviously, we've been talking all about emissions and carbon footprint, but uh, sustainability, in my opinion, is much more broad than that. So, you know, how do you define that? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because sustainability has all these different pillars, right? There's the environmental pillar, which folks tend to focus on. And we did today with the greenhouse gas emissions. There's the economic pillar, right? Farming's a business. It has to be profitable for for the farmer. It has to be affordable for the consumer. Otherwise, it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to work. And then there's the social piece too. In our report, since it was kind of focused quantitatively on climate, you know, and on avoiding deforestation, we kind of defined it using environmental terms. And we defined it as by 2050, everyone's adequately got enough food to eat. You know, we've eliminated hunger, we've eliminated deforestation, and we've reduced agriculture's emissions in line with kind of where the climate science says we need to be to avoid dangerous levels of climate change. So that's the definition that kind of we use and we work backwards from there. But you pose a really good question because, you know, my definition of sustainable or how I used it today or in this conversation (laughs) might be very different than someone else's definition. And, 
some people are looking at certain practices and they're, you know, certifying a certain practice as sustainable. Some people are taking the approach that we did, which is you sort of look at a whole societal outcome and say, if we achieve that through all these different measures, then it adds up to being sustainable. That's two kind of different things, but they do link together. So I think, you know, when folks use the word, whether it's sustainable, regenerative has the same issues, it's good to be very clear what it is you're talking about and not talking about, because I think otherwise conversations can kind of break down and people can talk past each other. I always ask every guest, is there any one or two startups that are out there doing interesting work that you think, you know, are producing potentially promising results in your field of study? One thing that we kind of only touched upon on is, uh, is food waste. And so there's a company called Appeal Sciences, and they have this product that you can spray on produce that dramatically increases the shelf life of the produce. And so things like that could help, you know, just like we talked about nitrification inhibitors for fertilizers, if there's food loss that happens, you know, between the farm and the market, developing countries, for example, if there's ways to cut back on that, you know, through new technologies like what like what Appeal is doing, I think that's really, really interesting because, you know, we talked a bit about behavior change. It's really hard to do things differently. So if there are these, you know, technological breakthroughs that reduce an inefficiency or somehow, you know, reduce environmental impact or increase, increase efficiency somehow, I think these are going to be really important to helping us solve this huge food and climate challenge. Okay, great shout out there to end our episode to Appeal Sciences. Thank you so much to Rich Waite for being on the show. I really do appreciate his data-driven approach to some of the biggest challenges and opportunities facing the future of agriculture. Rich is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, and I highly recommend you follow him as well if you're not already. He's just at Wait Rich, which is just his last name, so W-A-I-T-E and then R-I-C-H. Thanks as well to those of you who continue to share this show on social media and with your friends. Special shout out to Quinn Kohler, who recently tweeted about the episode 261 that we had with Jordan Lambert. It's really appreciated and, and one of the best ways you can help to support this show. I really do appreciate your time and your attention. I don't take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh, 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 oh